Welcome to the Business of Psychology podcast, the show that helps you to reach more people, help more people, and build the life you want to live by doing more than therapy. I'm excited to bring you today's episode with Dr. Sarah Swan. Sarah shares loads of really good value in this episode. But I did, before we jump in, want to mention that we had a little bit of technical trouble on the call, and I think you are going to be able to hear that. There's a little bit of background noise, and there are times when Zoom does its kind of Zoomy, not working so well thing. You know, we're in lockdown, we're all experiencing this on a regular basis on conference calls, so I know you're going to bear with me and get the best out of this episode anyway. So I hope you enjoy it. And as ever, give me some feedback and let me know. I think you're going to find this really, really useful. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Sarah Swan. Sarah is a consultant clinical psychologist who, after reaching senior roles in the NHS, decided to leave and set up a private practice in order to follow her core values. Since then, Sarah's diversified into business consultancy and working with the ACP, which is the Association for Clinical Psychologists for anyone who's not in the UK. So welcome, Sarah. There's so much I want to ask you about today, uh, but let's start at the beginning of your private practice journey. So what made you think about leaving your very successful NHS career? Thank you for that introduction, Rosie. Um, yeah, it was it was a decision that came about after, uh, I would say, a few years of soul searching. Um, and I was finding my NHS role very stressful. Um, I was working very long hours. Services weren't really going in the right direction in terms of us being able to offer what I felt was good clinical practice to people using the services. Um, and then after, I, I, I asked to reduce my hours or to, 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 to work flexibly, um, to have three longer days. Um, and that was turned down. So I made the decision to cut my hours and then to um, do some private practice. And often I think that we can have quite an emotional connection to our NHS roles. I've been thinking a lot lately about work and identity and I think something like I work for the NHS can often be a really strong part of our identity. So how did it feel to make that decision? Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. I mean, when I qualified 20 years ago, um, I remember saying then that I was I was not interested in ever doing private practice and that my values were about working with the NHS and um, I felt very committed to that. And I think I did really struggle with that and sometimes still do. Um, but I think it's been coming out of the NHS, seeing the impact on how I feel, my well-being, being out of it um, and, and the stresses that it brings. Um, but also seeing the difference I can make to individual people's lives, as well as on a wider scale by doing things through businesses for staff well-being, that's enabled me to see that actually that does fit with my values too. Um, and you know, I'm hugely supportive of, of the NHS, and I and I really want psychologists to be able to work in the NHS in a way that is good for their well-being and that was another reason why I wanted to be involved in the ACP to have that kind of strategic influence so that I can still hopefully be making a difference that will help other people to to remain in the NHS if they want to Um, and potentially myself too I'm not saying I'll never go back but um, you know when I made the decision it was definitely the right decision for me. Hmm. So it sounds like it was about finding a flexible way of meeting your values. Yes, definitely. Um, And also finding what was going to um, give me most satisfaction in my in my work role. It was when I started uh, looking more at employee well-being Um, that I suddenly realised, hang on a sec, my job isn't giving me the satisfaction that it once did. 
and um, you know all the the things that is good about being in work, the positives that come from being in work. I was finding that I wasn't necessarily getting those things out of my NHS role myself, um, and instead I was I was getting increasingly burnt out really. Mm, yeah, I mean I. I certainly never got to these heights myself in the NHS, <laughs> but I can imagine uh, having watched colleagues um, come out of clinical role and more into management role. Um, it looks like job satisfaction would be fairly low, almost like you're sacrificing your clinical satisfaction for um, managerial skills and helping other people um, develop their skills, I suppose. Yeah, um, but what I enjoyed about being in a senior senior role was more the kind of innovation, service development type work. And um, so it was that side of it that kept kept me going. And I think I kept thinking, if I just get to the next level up, I'll be able to do more of that, less of the uh, kind of governance stuff and um, the more, yeah, uh, operational management stuff that I didn't like um but it never it never happens that stuff was always still there um and I also found myself increasingly doing kind of administrative tasks that just didn't feel like I was using my skills um and it it wasn't interesting and it wasn't fulfilling but it had to be done and so those things always sort of trumped the being able to spend time thinking about um, service developments and and the things that were more inspiring for me. Yeah, and and that definitely is one of the things I love the most about being independent. Is in my private practice, if I want to innovate and try something new, try a different way of doing things, I can just do that and I can evaluate it. And that is definitely what drives me forward in my practice. Um, and I guess if you've got that spark in you, that's what you really want to do. It's not that surprising, really, that you ended up striking out and allowing that creativity to have yeah. a more obvious bent <laughs> than it might have done before. Yeah, and I think I worried about not having a team around me because I've always considered myself a real team player and also kind of thought I tend to kind of spark off other people and so that's how I develop those innovative ideas. But I think it's just about creating your own network in independent practice um, and at, and also speaking to people outside of um, clinical roles actually is really helpful too and has been really inspiring and helped me to, to develop um, in the different areas that I have. Yeah, I could not agree more with that. So who have been the really important people um, in your network? Um, well, I'm fortunate enough to have a husband who's got a background in marketing and business development, so he's been really helpful. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but also just kind of friends and neighbours, and I, I've I've kind of always struggled a bit. I felt in sort of social situations where I don't know people well, and um, this has I think really helped me to kind of just talk to people generally and sort of share what I'm doing and share my ideas and it's been really interesting to get feedback from people with a range of sort of different professions and different kind of contexts um, about about what I'm doing an example not a good example I have to say not a positive example but something that was a real learning curve for me was in in the very early days of me trying to do something with with businesses I was at some kind of social event I can't remember where it was now but I was anyway sat next to this guy who was quite dull to be honest Um, and uh, so he was asking me about what I do and um, I was talking about wanting to do um, work with businesses around employee well-being in the area of mental health um, and he looked at me very puzzled and he, you know, he said, oh, well, I said, you know, he was quite senior in business. And he said, well, I'm, I'm not sure I'd, I'd be buying into that because I'd just be trying not to recruit those people with my, who were, you know, had mental health problems or, you know, trying to move them out of the business. Oh. So it was a big eye opener because I just thought, wow, if that's the starting point. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I need to think about how I'm kind of pitching this. Um, and it was at that point as well that I started to realise that I can't be talking about 
kind of mental health problems and depression and anxiety that I needed to you know be talking more about well-being and stress rather than anxiety and you know just really thinking about my language and how that was going to connect with with the the person I was talking to and where where they were at in terms of their understanding of mental health and 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 the business context they were in that's so interesting I think i I've definitely found that myself in networking that I've done with people uh, from non-clinical areas and um, the word stress and burnout seems to be okay Um, and anxiety is not okay (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah I think it can we can exist in a bit of a clinical bubble where most of the people that we're socializing with might have similar views to us might use similar language to us Um, and certainly for me although I've got lots of friends in other areas of my life my social media is quite heavy with other psychologists or people who at least are kind of interested in mental health and and think about those issues quite a lot so when I struck out on my own a lot of my messaging um because I was trying to reach people before the point of crisis because that was the whole that was one of the things that drove me out of the NHS I wanted to intervene before crisis and that wasn't what we were commissioned to do anymore um and all of my messaging was just falling on completely deaf ears because I I was talking about you know preventing um these difficulties and people were like well I'm not the kind of person that would uh, would get those difficulties because uh you know yeah. I, I'm a mentally well person not a mentally ill person like, oh no <laughs> so that was a massive shift for me and it, and it sounds like that was really relevant to the world of business as well yeah definitely but then I did um connect with a couple of people who who I didn't know well but um were kind of um connections through other people um, who were in big businesses and did really seem to get it and were interested in what I was talking about Um, and um, yeah so it was through those kind of connections that I eventually got my first pieces of of work within businesses. Okay and what did that look like was it a training course or supervision groups or? Uh, So the first thing I did was um, running something on stress awareness and stress managers management for a small group of managers um but that was it within a large multinational tech company so i felt like i was (laughs) going on a steep learning curve um i would have liked a few more preparatory things first before going into such a big organization and i remember sitting in the car park before going in for my first meeting to kind of set this up and absolutely bricking myself (laughs) (laughs) it was a slightly more polite version of what I was about to say (laughs) and just thinking what do I know about this business world I know nothing I'm going to put my foot in it Uh, you know I'm going to be completely out of my depth Um, and I think I was all suited and booted for the first time in my life Um, and I walked in and they were all in jeans and trainers and really casual (laughs) Um, but but they were really nice people and no reason why they shouldn't have been and and the meeting went really well and I felt really really comfortable and um, yeah and the 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 half-day workshop that I delivered was really well received got really good feedback so that was the first thing I did. Okay, and then I guess once you've got that feedback, you can iterate and develop and, and build from there. And I think it's really nice actually to hear that story because uh, myself included in this actually, I think there's probably a lot of people listening to this who are thinking, could I offer something to a business um, or maybe another type of organisation? but are getting so hung up on feeling like they need to create something huge in advance before they ever deliver it, that it's holding them back. And actually, it sounds like what you did was offer something fairly small to start with, even though it was to a massive organisation, but then get the feedback and and build from, from there. And I think that is the liberating way of doing things. Scary, though. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it, it's hard because you've got to have some ideas before you can kind of pitch it. But equally, 
you know, I think one of the skills we have is is being able to make things very much bespoke mm. to the individual or to an organisation. So I think that's a real unique selling point for us as well. So was there any other research that you did that gave you a window into what businesses actually wanted from you? Yeah, so I um, had a sort of random opportunity really that arose out of um, a friend's Facebook post. This was an old school friend of mine who I hadn't really had contact with for, for many years, but I thought from her, some of her posts that she had perhaps um, had some issues with her own mental health. And um, one day she posted to say that she was so glad that she worked for an organisation where she could talk about her mental health problems and feel supported. And I knew she worked for a big um, consulting firm. So I messaged her and asked if she could put me in touch with, or no, initially I asked her if she could um, tell me a bit more about what her organisation did to help her to feel supported and, and to speak openly. And she then offered to put me in touch with the person who runs their staff wellbeing service. So uh, I had a, a, arranged a call with, with, with them um, and really just went into it saying, you know, I'm hearing really positive things. I'm wondering if you can share with me how you've achieved that. And uh, the woman was so kind, she spent probably about 45 minutes telling me all about how they've developed champions, mental health champions within their organisation, how they offer training to those champions and various things that they do throughout the year to try and promote mental health and um, to enable people to feel comfortable in sharing. Um, so I gathered loads of really useful information from that. But then at the end, she said, I'm wondering if there's something you could do for our tra next training session for our mental health champions, because we don't have anything set up at the moment. So that then meant I could put together some ideas for her. And uh, so I went up, went along and um, did a training session for, I think there were about 50 people in the room and another 50 people um, uh, listening to the audio or seeing the video um, and so yeah an opportunity came out of something that I never would have imagined but I went into it asking them for information and she was really forthcoming with that but as well as then an offer of work. Wow it just shows doesn't it how getting over that fear that I think a lot of us have of putting ourselves out there talking about what we want to do what we're doing um, to our friends and people that we kind of know, our acquaintances, even though it's scary, it can have such a massive payoff. Absolutely. And that was how my role with the ACP came about as well. Um, so I, I had joined in the early days because I was really convinced of the need for uh, an organisation that could uh, do more in terms of being a voice for the profession and promoting the profession. Um, so I'd signed up early on and went to their inaugural conference. And um, Mike Berger, who was the course director at Royal Holloway when I trained, uh, was involved on the board, which I hadn't realised before. Uh, and so I thought, oh, I must go and go and speak to him. And I kind of was interested in getting involved, but I had no idea what, what kind of involvement I wanted to have. Um, but I felt nervous about going to speak to him. I hadn't seen him for 20 years. I always have this voice that says, no, no one's going to remember you. <laughs> so it was kind of, uh, and then there was lots of people in the way of kind of being able to, to go and speak to him. But I pushed myself. I made myself go and do it when, I, when in the past I know I would have avoided it. Um, but I just went and said hello. And, you know, he was really sweet and remembered me and, you know, was really positive about um, the work of the ACP and um, how the how the board worked together really well. And so was really interested in when I said that I, I would like to be involved in some way. And uh, we arranged to speak after the event. Um, and he said that there were uh, some new board role members coming up. Um, so uh, I, I had no idea what that kind of role would entail. I'd never been involved in anything like that before. It certainly was not the kind of level I was thinking of when I thought about getting involved. 
But the more I spoke to him, the more it just felt like the right thing to do somehow. And I was at the stage where I still had my NHS job. I was building my private work. I really didn't have any spare time. But he was very reassuring that, that the board were, were cognizant of the fact that everyone had other jobs. And, and so in the end, I put myself forward and, um, yeah, and now on the board. And it's been such a good, good move. Um, it's, it's giving me lots of new connections. It's keeping me involved in the kind of systemic work that I wanted to do, the more strategic um, element of the role. Um, so, yeah, it's been a really good, good move. Yeah, I mean, that sounds fascinating. I think I want to ask you a bit more about the ACP itself um, mm-hmm. because I think it's a pretty inspiring organisation. I'm a member, um, but I know not everybody will actually have, have heard of them. We've got people that listen to the podcast in other countries even. So I definitely want to ask you more about that. But before I do, I would have no idea what a role on a board <laughs> would involve <laughs> either. So can you break that down for us a little bit? Like, what are you what are you doing for them? <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think how long have I been on the board now? Um, is it, it must be coming up for nine, nine months, maybe a year. Um, and I think I'm still figuring it out myself, but as, as we all are, I think, and particularly, you know, I was on one track uh, with the work that I was doing to try and build membership. Um, with, so my role is director for England, which sounds like a very grand title. But, um, uh, yeah, my, I was trying to focus on on um, building membership within England. Um, and one of the things I did was start the Facebook page, um, which I think is how we connected was it I can't remember yes it was yeah Yeah. (laughs) um so yeah so I I had a bit of knowledge about Facebook and how how that can work so I started that page and that's been actually really positive in getting getting new members in and getting people to know more about the organization um but yeah so there's there's um directors for England Ireland Scotland and Wales and then there's um uh other other board member positions so we we meet uh uh every month and every two months face to face um and so we look at what what is the um, strategic direction of the organization um as well as having to um build membership because that's the only way we're funded at the moment is through membership and then responding to um uh government um requests for you know directions like the latest one around how to get services uh running again post covid um the psychological professions network in terms of how to develop um psychological professions with within the five-year forward review um so what we really want to be able to do is respond quickly to those kinds of requests so that we're being really influential um, at a government and strategic level and because we're a members-led organization as much as we can going out to consult our members um on on the direction of that vision so answering your question yeah i mean it, it sounds like really broad and I imagine it must have been quite intimidating going into that where there isn't, it doesn't sound like there's a defined, this is your job spec, do this, you ticked it, you're fine. It sounds very yeah. much like it's always ongoing, there's always more, and that you're always having to innovate and find new ways of meeting those objectives. Yeah, absolutely. It it was daunting going in, and I remember at the end of my first board meeting, I, I went, so what am I supposed to be doing exactly? <laughs> because there really isn't that clear sort of job description, but that's also really exciting. And um, I feel I have been able to bring a lot of ideas um, and, and a lot of innovation into the role. And also my experience in working with businesses has also started to show as well in that I'm I'm perhaps someone who... Uh, thinks a bit more along a kind of business model line or thinks a bit more about, um, you know, income generating activities. 
Um, and it's been, yeah, so it's been really nice to have that kind of flexibility um, to bring, you know, I do feel I'm bringing my skills to the table there and that, that they're very much, you know, valued and respected. Um, and so, yeah, it's a really great team to work work within. And, and you know, I feel we've, cut, they'd set up something really good before I joined, but I think we've come a long way since then as well. And it's really building momentum now. And really. So, if you don't mind, could you mm-hmm. talk to us a little bit about the mission of the ACP and, and what it is about as an organisation? Yeah, so it wants to represent clinicologists and really be a really sort of loud and active voice. And it wants to be able to shape uh, how the government kind of see clinical psychologists, raise the profile of clinical psychologists, and for that to be evident within service structures. So, for example, we are advocating very strongly for um, a psychological professional's lead on boards within all NHS trusts. It sounds like getting the profile of psychology up um, on a government level and reflecting that in NHS services is a key priority which yeah, to me definitely. seems absolute, absolutely crucial um, I think you can tell that our profile is not high enough by the fact that there are members of my family who have no idea what my profession does no idea yeah our profile is therefore clearly too low <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah so things like I think um I think we would probably all agree that over over the years, um, our bandings have been um, kind of lowered, that people are are stuck in lower banded jobs, that people in lower banded jobs are performing roles that would have been done by more senior um, clinical psychologists in the past. Um, And so we're very strongly advocating for the need for senior leadership roles. Um, and, and again, trying to educate about why those are needed. Well, I was just going to say, I think that's important on a couple of levels, isn't it? It's like, firstly, that if you're calling something a band seven and it actually involves service development and, ev- and evaluation and all of that stuff, um, which, you know, I did a role like that, um, then what message is that communicating about the value of the product? Yeah. Um, because I remember presenting something um for commissioners and thinking ah this is not going to be implemented because i am a newly qualified band seven psychologist um this doesn't look like it's been taken seriously i thought you know to use a political word but the optics of it were bad (laughs) yeah (laughs) And, and and that seems um really crucial but i think also um my perspective, my husband is a military man, not particularly psychologically minded, but sometimes he comes out with the most crystal clear common sense. And he was um, looking at what AXA would pay a um, clinical psychologist per hour versus a psychiatrist. This is the kind of thing he does. <laughs> and he looked at that and he was like, well, clearly they don't respect what you do because it's um, the the top rate for clinical psychologists is less than half of the top rate for a psychiatrist. I thought, "Mm, yeah, it's, we don't want to be seen as money grabbing. So we don't like to talk about it very much. And a lot of us feel very privileged by our salaries, but actually when you look at where people are putting their money, you often see where their values lie. And it's wonky at the moment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And someone once said to me when I was talking about, um, you know, feeling uncomfortable about my fee for individual therapy, that that people can easily spend £80 going to the hairdressers. And actually, what are you offering in terms of helping people to really make some significant changes? and yeah, that helped me to start seeing it differently in terms of individual therapy as well. Mm. 
sometimes it really helps to have an, a non-psychologist talk to you about your fees like yeah. if you can ever talk to an accountant or a lawyer <laughs> they're, Absolutely. they're always really useful <laughs> if you need a bit of help talking about your hourly rate yeah um, <laughs> So I know that ACP have been doing an awful lot about the COVID-19 response. Um, is there a message that you particularly want to get out about that from an ACP point of view? We at the ACP are really keen to support not just our members, but the wider uh, clinical um, staff team and and sort of healthcare, health and social care providers. Um, so we've uh, got a number of strands to our COVID-19 response. Uh, the first one has been to develop a webinar programme. So I've been leading on um, one that's um, ACT for frontline workers, so it's sharing some ACT skills that can help anyone working still directly with patients during COVID-19 um, to help them manage any anxiety, stress, etc. that's that's coming from that. Um, so that's been going, uh, we've done three or four sessions, three or four webinars now. We've just put more dates in the diary because they're filling up so fast. And it's been great that we've had psychologists come along to those, but we also really want to get it out to doctors and nurses and social workers and anyone else who's working with, with, with people um, face-to-face at the moment. Um, we've also had... Um, uh, the 20 minute care space webinar which has been for members only um, and that's been looking at a really great model of offering um, staff support in a very brief way but really promoting kind of connection between staff members and then uh, Arabella Kurtz is uh, running a webinar again for members which is about uh, reflective practice and sharing her model which is really recently written about um, to support psychologists in running reflective practice groups because I know that's something that lots of people are being asked to do at the moment. Um, we've also got some other ones planned, ones around working with families and I can't remember the other one um, but yeah lots happening there on the webinar front. Uh, we've got a page on our website where we're sharing um, kind of innovative practice ideas from our members um, and just members' experiences of, of working during this time. Our one-to-one support offer is for our members. So um, any of our full members can access support from uh, an, another qualified member. And then we wanted to broaden that out. We were particularly mindful of more senior leadership roles within the NHS where people might be less likely to access other types of support that are on offer. So thinking kind of senior medics, senior managers. Um, so again, we've had great response from our members um, offering up their time for free to offer uh, support to that, those types of professionals. So we've been really busy in our, our COVID response, but from the feedback we're getting, it seems like we've been doing what what um, what what our members are wanting us to do, and, and what seems valuable. Yeah, and it seems like a very flexible approach that will be sustainable for as long as we need it, which strikes me as as really sensible and kind of what we need to see right now. I think a lot of people have talked about this pressure to create a psychological antidote to the stress of COVID-19 and I know colleagues um, in the NHS who have been asked to kind of leap into action and provide counselling straight away for people who actually they're still in the eye of the storm Mm -hmm. and it's not the time yet for reflection and healing it's the time for compassionate survival (laughs) yeah absolutely um And what I like about the ACP strategy is it's like, right, okay, we're going to do this now. um, And this is hopefully going to help give people the skills that they need right now to get through this moment. But that it may change as time goes on and we move into different phases of the crisis. Um, Absolutely. It seems like like as an organisation, you're always kind of getting the feedback 
from members and responding to that rather than coming top down with a model of oh this is how we think you will need help <laughs> in six months time yeah definitely so we came up with these various ideas as a board but then we went out to our members to say what do you think mm. how would you rate these in in um, order of, of priority um, and actually they all came back as fairly equal so people were saying they were you know all aspects were of the strategy were were required um, so yeah absolutely listening to feedback mm. so it you've taken a lot of leaps of faith in your career and you've done <laughs> a lot of really admirably scary stuff <laughs> Um, so I'm assuming that you have had um, some kind of professional support along the way. I don't know, have you had a coach or somebody to help you with that process? Yeah, I think I've had um, a kind of a mentor who was a sort of an early supervisor who who remains a friend now. And I think she's always been someone who I've I've turned to for kind of professional support um but I did have some professional coaching a few years ago as well and that was actually provided by my NHS trust which is um, a fantastic opportunity um, and I'd recommend if anyone has that on offer to to take it up I actually um, first of all had coaching from someone within my own organization and then someone externally and both were were, were really helpful in in different ways um, but I think the the external coach that I saw really helped me to reflect on the situation I found myself in in my job at the time, which I really wasn't very happy. Um, and I, sorry, and there's the dogs. And then, <laughs> just so the listeners know, we prepared the fact that there might be a doggy that's real life we're in covid19 we're all in exactly. our houses there are dogs in those houses there are cats and babies in mine so <laughs> we'll just roll with it <laughs> so you're saying um, the external coach brought you a lot of value yes so in helping me reflect on on what what i was unhappy about within my current role and I shared my thoughts with her about these vague ideas I had about working outside of the NHS. And she really validated those and was quite excited about some of my ideas. And that started to give me that kind of inkling that maybe this was something that I could do. Maybe there was some possibilities here. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, she she was really quite influential in helping um, me to start on that journey towards more independent practice. Mm, it sounds like she almost gave you the space that you needed to uncover your values. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And also to give me some feedback as to you know what she could see as my strengths um, and also where... I perhaps wasn't being given opportunities or, or uh, yeah, opportunities to grow and and to develop my skills in the role that I was was in. Mm. It's funny, isn't it, how sometimes somebody who maybe doesn't know that much about the kind of work that you do um, isn't embroiled in the same language or career path or any of that stuff um, that we build our careers and our lives around can sometimes just cut through it all and see things that you haven't been able to see uh, I have yeah, coaching definitely. at the moment and I that's certainly my experience that um, her background is education and press um, right. she's a journalist so <laughs> couldn't be more <laughs> different really from from what I do and um, but often she'll just be like um have you been holding yourself back here perhaps or are you just not doing that because you're frightened rather than because you actually think you can't and I'll be like oh wow and I, and I don't think that a psychologist friend of mine would have seen it either because mm. you know it's different perspectives so 
along this pretty fantastic journey, what have been the most surprising or inspiring moments? I think when I delivered my first piece of work for for a business and it was successful um and that was inspiring not just because you know it felt good on a personal level and I felt like I'd really achieved something that was really scary to do I'd really put myself out of my comfort zone but again it enabled me to collect connect with my values around working with people and to finally kind of squash those concerns I had about doing independent work outside of the NHS because it enabled me to see that you know bringing my skills into a business was really offering something that they didn't have they didn't have this knowledge and they didn't have anyone else in the organization who could help them develop this knowledge and that this was going to be something they were going to be sharing with their teams and was going to be helping them to support their teams better and so like you were saying Rosie about wanting to do something that was around earlier intervention it was absolutely connecting with that Mm. Um, and then I think similarly I've I've so I offer um, individual therapy for staff within a particular organization um, I'm working with them on doing some more sort of strategic stuff as well but so far they've just been commissioning me to provide um, individual therapy but I the first person I worked with for them was somebody who was currently off sick um, due to her, her um, mental health issues and you know within six sessions I'd helped her to get back into into work and she was really someone that I could see could have really deteriorated and and then you know probably would have lost her job and would have been accessing NHS services so I could see that what I was doing was potentially having an impact on the NHS still it was preventing people from getting to that stage and needing to access NHS services Um, And so it still fitted with my values. And so that was a real light bulb moment for me that, you know, I wasn't just doing this because I wanted to, you know, earn good money. It was, you know, because I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to make a, a difference to people early and that I could still have a positive impact on the NHS, even if I wasn't working in it directly. Yeah, I think that's a lesson that I learned um, fairly recently as well, actually, because I started taking on some work um, for people who are working for an organisation and who are struggling. It sounds really similar. Um, and they were people that wouldn't meet any kind of clinical thresholds yet. <laughs> yeah. I could see that they would have. Um, and it just really made me question this whole idea of is the term clinical psychologist even right? Which I know is just like a huge, is is a huge topic, but I don't know how much I believe in the clinical business distinction. I think we're kind of putting arbitrary labels on it. Ultimately, you're giving people skills and knowledge and empowering them to have better mental well-being. And that would probably mean that they don't have a mental health crisis at some point that they're the same human being that might have had that mental health crisis. Um, Definitely. And yeah, I've worked with lots of people in individual therapy who, as you say, wouldn't be meeting criteria to access services, but still have, have got, you know, significant difficulties that are impacting on them hugely. Um, And, you know, some for, for, you know, tens of years um, and, yeah, they've been able to access something that's made a real difference for them. And I think often those people become real advocates for the stuff that we're teaching as well. I I use a lot of ACT and compassion-focused therapy in my work. Um, And it's not that uncommon for uh, people to say in our sessions, oh, I was telling my sister about this and I've told my mum about this. And I think, well, that's what happens when you're providing that psychoeducation 
before the point of crisis. People get excited about it because it's enhancing their life. It's not, it's coming at a time when they've still got the resources and the ability to, to go out and spread the word, which they don't always have when we see them further down the line. Yeah, definitely. It impacts in so many ways. I think that's one of the things I find really inspiring about the work that you've been doing, um, doing workshops and all of that stuff where you, you're reaching with your first one. Sounds like it reached like 100 people. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. Something a much bigger reach than we could ever have um, working at like the thin end of the wedge. Yeah, and with with the the way we're all currently currently working, I've really embraced the whole webinar approach. So um, I've been reaching huge numbers of people through the ACT webinar for the ACP. Um, and uh, yeah, it's definitely going to be something that I continue to to do. Um, so yeah, I've recently connected with with another clinical psychologist, and we've done a piece of work for a, a business together where that was totally webinar based. Um, and so we're looking at how we can kind of promote that to to other businesses at the moment. I do think if there is anything positive about the current crisis, it is that it has made us be more innovative. And in doing so, we've explored a lot more online ways of working, which, of course, they allow more people to access us than could possibly access us face to face. And I really do hope that we hang on to that. I think we'll have to. Um, from the sound of it, it looks like it's <laughs> going to be here for a while. Um, so we're all going to get good at it. Um, and I think I, I've been practicing online for quite a long time um, because of the nature of my life moving a lot. So it, it made a lot of sense to me. So I was an early adopter. But what I found when I started about 18 months ago I sort of came out as an online therapist um, <laughs> that quite a lot of um, friends and colleagues were a little bit skeptical about the value of it. Um, and even I, there, was, there were certain topics that I wouldn't go near um, until quite recently. I was like, oh, I, I normally do quite a lot of trauma work. because I don't want to do trauma work online and had a lot of barriers in place. And actually COVID-19 has forced a lot of those barriers to come down. There were people who I was right in the middle of the MDR processing with when lockdown was called um, and we couldn't have anticipated it. So we've had to work around that and things change and they are different, but they did carry on. Um, and it, I think a lot of people have found that there are adaptations we can make and that those perhaps in some ways give us more capacity and more reach. So I think that's really exciting. Yeah, definitely. I, I was the same. I was doing some online work before this, um, but hadn't quite got my confidence with it and still had these doubts about whether you could connect with people as well. And yeah, how things like EMDR would work. And um, But uh, I have to say, I'm, I'm loving it, actually. Um, and I'm definitely planning to continue to work more in this way in the future. Mm. Okay, so it's time for the selfish questions that I ask at the end of every <laughs> podcast. <laughs> so firstly, what two action steps would you um, want psychologists or therapists listening to this to go away and do now? Okay, so I think really questioning whether your current working situation, your current role or roles are fulfilling for you and meeting what you want and need out of out of work that you know we do tend to be quite self-sacrificing um and maybe just trying to take a step back from that for a minute and thinking you know is this is this good for me is this what I want is this helping me get to where I want to be uh, so just yeah really really questioning that mm. and if if there are aspects that you know, uh, aspects that you want from a job that you're not getting at the moment thinking creatively about how you might be able to fulfill those aspects um, and sort of trying to look more broadly uh, out of your normal comfort zone to think about where you might be able to access those things that you want. Hmm. I think that sounds that really important. 
because we can get stuck on a bit of a hamster wheel and never yes. kind of stop and think uh, about ourselves at all <laughs> in any capacity. So that sounds really important. And so finally, who would you like, if I could get anybody, who would you like to see interviewed on this podcast? I think my friend Rana Rashid springs to mind. Um, I, I, haven't, I haven't asked her whether they want to, but um, she has just moved into a band nine job and she is amazing in her ability keep motivated and work through the politics um and she's someone who is really good at uh finding projects to get involved in and developing projects that um are about her values um and as well as what she feels an organization needs but that's what helps to keep her motivated in her role uh, and I think it would be really interesting to see how she um, reflects on moving into a, uh, such a senior position and what she sees as the challenges lying ahead. Yeah I think that would be fascinating actually because increasingly there are not very many band nine positions out there Um, and so a lot of us will not have met many people (laughs) in those (laughs) positions let alone have the chance to really sit down and and pick their brains about all of that so I'll try (laughs) you you may really not want to be but if she listens to this hopefully it will seem not too scary and (laughs) sure I'll put in a good word for you (laughs) (laughs) so thank you Sarah for sharing so much uh, valuable stuff today your career so far has really been an inspiring one and I know that there are going to be a lot of people listening to this who might be grappling with all of those issues around making a big life change like leaving employment leaving the NHS maybe and I know that your story will give them a bit of a window into the unknown so that they can maybe make that step with a bit more confidence. So if people want to find you, I believe your website is swanconsultancy.co.uk. That's right. On LinkedIn, you're Dr. Sarah Swan. On Facebook, it's at Swan Consultancy. And of course, if people want to know more about ACP membership, I believe it's acpuk.org.uk, but I'll put all of those links in the show notes so people can just click straight through. It's been lovely speaking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Nice to speak to you. I'm excited to let you know about a free event that we're running in the Do More Than Therapy Facebook group on Wednesday, the 24th of June. I've invited some inspiring people into the group to talk to us about topics that I know that you're struggling with. We've got Alexia Leachman coming in to talk to us about clearing your head trash and confidently marketing yourself in a big and scary world. We've got Liz Stanford from the Calm Burst School talking to us about creating captivating workshops and an awesome group engagement strategy. And finally, we've got Sam Hill telling us how to create community and help people through social media. The event is going to be streamed live into the Facebook group on June 24th. So make sure that you're a member and that you answer the membership questions when you join. That way we can send you details of the event and how to get your hands on recordings of all of the sessions. See you there.